Follow along as I read this morning, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When, therefore, they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. As we look at Matthew's gospel, we must remember that the emphasis is always on Jesus as the sovereign king. From the very opening genealogy, Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham, demonstrating that indeed he is Christ the King, the the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews. In fact, the portrait of his kingship and his kingdom is painted on the canvas of every page of Matthew's gospel. Thirty-two times Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And it's found nowhere else in all of the Bible. Repeatedly, he describes him as the son of David. And in fulfillment to 62 Old Testament prophecies pertaining to Jewish Messiah, or I should say messianic expectations, Matthew helps us see the Lord Jesus Christ revealed, refused, rejected, and ultimately resurrected. And like no other gospel, Matthew underscores Israel's tragic rejection of her king. 
while at the same time depicting him as the victorious king of kings that will someday return in power and in great glory. And in today's text, we witness again Israel's rejection, the same kind of hostile repudiation that we see today in our world. Before we look at it closely, I must say that my heart grows weary with grief as I meditate on these themes. And we've had to do so here for a number of weeks as we've gone through verse by verse the tragic miscarriage of justice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to, to see anyone abused is the source of great sorrow. But to see my Savior and my Lord, the one who loves me and the one who loves you, being so mistreated and mocked is something that brings deep distress to, to, to my soul. But despite the anguish, I believe that the Holy Spirit would have me preach it and you to learn it, even as we would sometimes have to force ourselves to go and view the corpse of a loved one for the first time. But as we look at this, I want to remind you that there is a glorious bright spot in it all. And that is that as we look at the suffering of our Savior, we know that through all of that emerges the grace that is ours. And as we prepare our hearts to look at this text, I want you to keep in mind that we must do so with an attitude that desires to see the glory and the majesty and the excellency of Christ, even in the midst of his humiliation. As we behold the Lord Jesus, even in his humiliation, we can see his glory and we can ultimately rejoice because we are being changed into his likeness. And as we rejoice in our salvation, we can also remember that ultimately the gift of salvation is that of Christ himself. And let me explain this for a moment. We are saved ultimately to enjoy his presence forevermore. God himself is the supreme gift of our salvation. In Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, and here it is, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple you see, folks, true worship is God-centered worship. It is not man-centered worship. And likewise, true joy comes from Him. Not from other people, but ultimately from Him, from His very person. And I fear that all too often, as Christians think about the good news of the gospel... They kind of see it in a bit of a distorted way. Many times people will see the good news of the gospel as God making a huge fuss over how much he loves us. And that's what gets people all excited. And folks, if that is your focus, that is a man-centered worship. You see, rather what we need to do, especially as we grasp the agonies of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf... This should cause all of us to marvel at him and to love him more passionately so that our hearts desire to make a huge fuss over him 
for all eternity. You see the difference? And there is a big difference. I fear that many Christians look forward to heaven for numerous reasons, the last of which, unfortunately, is to enjoy the presence of God forevermore. I even fear that many times as Christians, we wouldn't mind it if God weren't even in heaven. Because after all, what we really want are all the goodies that he's going to give us. And somehow we lose sight of the fact that the greatest gift of all is God himself. For many people, enjoying the presence of God is kind of a non-issue in their Christian life. They really don't even know what that means. They, they, they perceive salvation to be all about me rather than God. And therefore, most people cannot identify with the psalmist who said in Psalm 1611, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, may I ask you, dear friends, before we... Look closely at the text. Can you really say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.23 that I desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better? Or is your joy based primarily, if not exclusively, on all of the heavenly benefits? Oh yeah, I know Christ will be there. I, I, I know that the triune Godhead will be there somewhere. But you know what I want? Is I want to see my loved ones that I miss that have gone on before me. And folks, I'm not saying that isn't appropriate. But I'm saying that that needs to be secondary, if not tertiary. So often we hear in the gospel songs, Oh, heaven's going to be all of these mansions and streets of gold and the pearly gates and these grand and glorious reunions and we're not going to be sick anymore. And before you know it, we can begin to worship all of the things that God is giving us and we leave God Himself out. And that is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And I, I fear that Many Christians fail to realize, again, that the ultimate gift of salvation is God Himself. It's little wonder why the world sees so little of Christ in Christians these days. I fear it's because Christians care so little for Him. Oh, we want everything that He's going to give us, but we really care very little for Him. Can you really say with David in Psalm 16:5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup? Can we really sing as we just did a moment ago from the very depths of our hearts, Psalm 42, 1 through 2? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. The imagery here is a deer that, that, that is dying of dehydration. And the only thing that is going to sustain that, that animal is the fresh water from the water brook. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the psalmist says, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Is that really the cry of your heart? Child of God, we must see that our only satisfaction, our only joy is in Him. There is no other source of delight apart from God. Our everlasting pleasure is in Him alone. I believe it was John Piper that said, The enjoyment of God is the final and best gift of love. 
The enjoyment of God is the final and best gift of love. And folks, this must be the passion of our heart, the passion of all of the redeemed. The gift of the gospel is Christ himself. I I cannot imagine heaven without the Lord. The true joy of heaven will be Christ himself. Not, Not all of the other gifts and all of the reunions, as glorious as those will be. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 3 and verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he said, I prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord, you see. So it is my prayer that we look beyond these rather gloomy passages of our Savior's shame and suffering. Look beyond it all and be able to see and savor God Himself, who is our joy and our salvation. As we see the agony of the lover of our souls, then perhaps we will be able to exclaim with even more excitement, And genuineness that, yes, indeed, my salvation is great, but my God is greater. My heart's desire is to behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy his presence forevermore. Well, there's three themes that I believe emerge from this passage that I hope and pray will stir our affections for Christ. Number one, we're going to see the fear of man And how it can be greater than the fear of God. We're going to see this this as we look at how Pilate fears the Jewish authorities and Caesar. And how the Jewish authorities fear their own people. But none of them really fear God. We're also going to see, secondly, the silence of Christ. Displaying the the regal authority and power and and love of the king. And thirdly, we're going to examine the self-condemnation of Israel which temporarily severed them from the vine of salvation. Now, one more digression before we look at the text, because I feel it's important. We live in a world that really knows nothing of sin and therefore sees no need for the Savior. But sin is a devastating power. And as we look at Scripture, we can see that every human being is a sinner by nature. We we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. It's who we are. As we look at Scripture, we can see that sin has penetrated and corrupted the whole of man's being. It has corrupted our body, our mind, our will, our heart. And every man has the native capability of committing the most heinous of sins. And while unbelievers at times, do choose to do right. It is never because they desire to glorify God, but somehow, in a subtle way, they ultimately want to exalt themselves. And therefore, even their righteous deeds bring no joy nor glory to God. The unregenerate are completely without genuine love for God, which is the most fundamental requirement of God's moral law. As we look at Scripture, we see that the unsaved man is always getting morally worse. He will never get better. And all you have to do is look at the moral freefall in our own country to see that. 
can you imagine that we are actually debating the ethics and the morality of homosexual unions? It's absolutely inconceivable. And as we look at the power of sin in man, we also can see biblically that man apart from Christ, has no possible means of salvation or recovery in himself. And while man indeed has a free will to choose as he pleases, because of his depraved nature, he will never choose to love God and to serve Him. He is totally unable to believe the truth of the gospel apart from the regenerating grace of God. You see, again, the issue is never a man's will, it is his desire. Man has a free will, but he has no desire to love God and to deny himself and to serve the living Christ. And we see this fundamental spiritual defect in man being manifested here, first of all, in the fear of man being greater than the fear of God as we examine Pilate and the Jews. In Proverbs 29:25, we read that the fear of man is a snare. And indeed, if you fear man more than God, you will be in a snare. Now, now let me give you the context here, and it will begin to come together for you, I hope. It's about 5 a.m. on Friday morning, the day the Lord will be crucified. And Jesus has been to Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, and then shuffled back now to Pilate in the Praetorium. The Praetorium was basically a courthouse adjacent to the governor's residence in the fortress of Antonia in Jerusalem. Of course, it's Passover time, as you will recall. Jerusalem is filled with literally thousands of Jews from all over Israel, and all of them knew about Jesus. Many of them had been healed. Many of them had been fed by Jesus. He was the topic of every conversation. And many of them had witnessed or at least heard of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Not to mention the times when Jesus came and cleansed the temple. So the crowds now are very volatile. And all crowds are volatile, especially those that are energized by some kind of religious fervor. And this was a special concern for Pilate, the governor. Now, here's why. Pilate was at this stage in his life walking on thin ice, shall we say, with Caesar. He had made some serious blunders in his leadership as he had been governing Judea for about five years at this point. If you were to read the papers on Pilate at that time and kind of get a background, you would read that he had offended the Jews in their holy city. First of all, by requiring his soldiers to carry banners that bore the likeness of Caesar. And of course, this inflamed the Jews because that was idolatry. The Jews vehemently denounced that, asked them to be removed, and Pilate got upset with all of them, those that were complaining, and he arrested them and put them in an amphitheater and warned them that he was going to have the soldiers cut off their heads. And the Jews just laid down, stretched out their necks and said, go ahead. 
We will die for this. This is idolatry. And so in defiance of his uh, barbarism, they stretched out their necks and Pilate backed down because he realized that if he were to butcher them, he would certainly have provoked a revolution. Also, Pilate had made another blunder with respect to money that he had stolen from the temple treasury. Evidently, he needed to build an aqueduct, and so he decided to have his soldiers raid the temple to get some money. Well, that was not a smart thing to do. Of course, again, the Jews were incensed with rage, and they rioted. And what did Pilate do? Well, he had many of his soldiers disguise themselves as civilians and mix in with the people and massacre many of them, many of the unarmed protesters. By the way, Luke may have alluded to this in 13.1 when he spoke of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Or that may have also referred to some of the Galilean zealots that he had butchered when they had come to Jerusalem to worship. But bottom line, Pilate was a cold-hearted butcher that would go to any length to keep the peace and to keep his position and to keep his own head. In fact, Philo of Alexandria described Pilate as being, quote, naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. Well, that's not all. And yet another effort to flatter Tiberius, the emperor Pilate, had some shields made for his guards with the emperor's image on them. And of course, once again, the Jews were furious with, with such a thing. And they complained directly to Caesar. And Caesar recognized that this was causing a lot of trouble. And so he told Pilate, get rid of those shields. So fearing any unnecessary uprising from the Jews this is what Caesar did and what Pilate decided to do. So, with all of this brewing in the background, you must understand that the Jewish leaders knew that they had Pilate over a barrel. If I could use that phraseology. Pilate was in a serious no-conflict mode. And so he had to be very, very careful about how he handled this whole Jesus issue with the Jews. Now again, everyone knew of Jesus, especially Pilate the governor. You must remember that Jesus had a reputation of being a peaceful man, a miracle worker. Everybody knew he had power over sin, over Satan, over nature, over disease, uh, even over death. In fact, just, just a few days earlier, he had been welcomed into the city, hailed by thousands of the Jews. They cried out to him, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And certainly Pilate knew about all of that. Not only that, Pilate knew, I'm sure, about all of the ruckus Jesus had made in the temple on several occasions. And he even knew, I'm sure, about his soldiers who had been flattened when they went to arrest Jesus in the garden when Jesus spoke forth his covenant name. And he probably even heard about the ear being cut off by one of Jesus' disciples and Jesus picking it up and attaching it and healing the slave of the high priest. But in all of that, Pilate knew that Jesus was no threat. Obviously, had Pilate thought for one minute that Jesus was a threat, he would have had him arrested and executed. Because again, he didn't want to get on the bad side of Caesar. 
And so now here he is. He's awakened. The Jews, we know, are outside. They didn't want to come into the praetorium. They didn't want to be defiled for Passover. So they're on the outside. And John 18, verse 29, tells us that Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And, of course, they really didn't have one, but they were emboldened by the precarious political position that Pilate now found himself in. And so they answered, and I'm sure in a sarcastic way, and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. These people are feeling their oats pretty good here. And, of course, Pilate knew what was going on. He knew that the Jewish leaders were trumping up charges on Jesus, that Jesus was innocent, that they were envious, they were afraid of Jesus. Moreover, he knew that they hated him because he had exposed their hypocrisy and their greed. And according to Luke 23... We can read that earlier Pilate had heard the Jews accusing Jesus of stirring trouble up there in Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And even though he knew better, he knew Jesus was a hot potato. So we know that in Luke 23, what did what did he do since they were saying that he's stirring up trouble from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem? Well, if that's the case... Herod Antipas is up in, uh, up in Galilee, and by the way, he happened to be in town at the time, so Pilate said, mm, let's send him over to, uh, over to Herod. You know, let, let him take care of him. So that's what he did. And Herod, of course, was all too happy to see the miracle worker. Remember, he had cut the head off of John the Baptist. He knew all about Jesus. And Jesus had avoided going to Tiberias, where Herod lived, for, for fear of stirring up more trouble. It was not his time. And so anyway, Pilate sends him now to Herod. And here's what Herod says in Luke 23, beginning in verse 9. Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And it's interesting, the text says, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. It's amazing how sin often galvanizes people together. So now Jesus is returned to Pilate. He's wearing a kingly robe of mockery. And this brings us back to Matthew's account in verses 11 and 12. Now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And it goes on to say that he was being accused by the chief priests and elders. Now, we don't know everything that the chief priests and elders were saying about him. But we know some of their accusation. We see that in Luke 23 and verse 2. They said, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, these allegations were ridiculous. Anybody that had been around Jesus knew that he was perfectly submissive to Rome. He had told the people right there in the tabernacle, or I should say in the temple uh, courtyard, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He had even told his followers to exceed the law's requirement to carry a Roman soldier's gear for one mile. If somebody asked you, he said, don't carry it just one mile, carry it two. So Pilate and and Herod Antipas both knew 
what was really going on. They knew that the Jewish leaders were desperately trying to drum up some kind of charge against Jesus because he was a threat to their power and their authority. By the way, folks, this is what we would call politics as usual. All right. We see it all the time played out even in our country. So for this reason, Pilate told them in John 18:31, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. In other words, I don't want to be responsible for killing an innocent man. You execute him. And of course, they replied there in John 18:31, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. You see, you got the hot potato going on here. By the way, little did the Jews know that by not wanting to take the risk of inflaming the sensitivities of their Jewish brethren who may be sympathetic to Jesus and, and, and therefore by insisting that Rome do their killing, little did they realize that they were in fact fulfilling prophecy with respect to Jesus being crucified, which was the Roman means of execution. We read about this in John 18 Verses 31 and 32, the, the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And it says to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. I want you for a moment to turn to Luke chapter 23. Let's read Luke's account of what happened next. Beginning in verse 13, Luke 23 and verse 13 and Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. How sad. Even though he knew Jesus was innocent. Now catch this. Pilate feared man more than he feared God. And therefore he condemned Jesus to the cross. What a picture of so many who have done the same and who continue to do the same. Rather than standing and perhaps even having to suffer with Jesus in this life. People will reject him, fearing fellow sinners more than God. They prefer the fleeting pleasures of this life over the eternal pleasure of God himself. But such is the deception of sin. 
Well, secondly, our hearts are also drawn to the love of our Savior when we behold His silence, the silence of Christ in verses 12 through 14. Here we see the innocence of Jesus contrasted with the guilt of sinners. There Jesus stood. And try to get this in your mind, folks. Jesus stands there now in in regal robes of mockery. The innocent Lamb of God, our Savior and our Lord, His face, no doubt, is swollen and bruised and bleeding from the beatings. And His beard is matted with spittle. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so He did not open His mouth. And notice what Matthew tells us in verse 12, beginning in verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Certainly Pilate would be amazed. He was accustomed to hearing passionate Denials and defense of men who were perhaps facing the cross. But dear friends, Jesus' silence really spoke volumes with regard to his innocence. And think about it. He had, in effect, been acquitted by Herod and certainly acquitted by Pilate. Yet the die had been cast by a sovereign God. Pilate was between a rock and a hard place. He knew Jesus was innocent. In fact, in verse 18, it says that he knew because of envy they had handed him over. But again, Pilate feared the Jews and he feared Caesar's reprisal more than he feared God himself. But isn't it interesting how Satan is always available to come up with some kind of aid for the wicked? I find it fascinating in Mark 15, verse 8, we are told that the multitude went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And that was to release one prisoner at Passover. Evidently, this was a tradition that they held. And so they're coming up to, to Pilate and saying, hey, you know what? I think we've got a convenient way out of this whole deal. And Pilate hears this, oh, great idea. That's what I can do. This will be an act of peacekeeping between Rome and the Jews here. We'll release someone. And he's thinking, this is the perfect solution. But now here's what Pilate was thinking. Surely the people will cry for the release of Jesus, not this notorious terrorist and murderer and thief, Barabbas. And then I will be forced to release Jesus and the Jewish leaders won't be able to blame me for it because it was the crowd that cried for it. And so I will be able to spare this innocent man and I'll be glad to do that as long as it doesn't endanger me. And again, dear friends, the very essence of sin is selfishness. But God had other plans for His only begotten Son and all that was about to take place was according to, as Acts 2.23 says, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
That's interesting to further underscore the Lord's innocence. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the account of the dream that Pilate's wife had. In verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. How often we see the providence of God intruding upon a man's wicked schemes to give him a chance to somehow reflect upon the consequences of his plan. And indeed, we know scientifically that everyone dreams an average of seven times a night. And frankly, the only dreams that we ever remember are the ones that somehow awaken us. And therefore, the stuff of dreams needs to be wholly discarded. But for reasons known only to God, this dream served a purpose, causing great grief to this woman, and you would think causing some pause to Pilate. God only knows the horrors of that dream, what she saw, what she experienced. And I find it fascinating how God's providence works so often. Just at the appropriate time when Pilate already distressed over torturing an innocent man and really not wanting to do that, just as he takes his seat of adjudication there in the courtroom, his wife's message is brought to him. And there's every indication that it was spoken to him aloud in front of all of the people. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But, of course, the pack of wolves continued to howl for his death. And in verse 20, tells us that they were persuading the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Folks, as a minister of the gospel, I must confess that it is a great sadness to me to see many people like Pilate reject the numerous attempts of divine providence to turn people from irretrievable and eternal harm to Christ. How often I've seen God do this to get people's attention. And perhaps you might be here today in such a state. Perhaps you are here or you are listening to me. And your conscience tells you that God has mustered all of the forces of heaven and earth to gain your attention. And yet you still refuse. Somehow in your heart you have counted the cost and found it too high. So, preferring to gain the whole world, you were willing to forfeit your soul. And like Pilate, if this is you, you are self-centered and you are a coward. You fear man more than you fear God. And you're like the Jewish leaders, self-righteous and self-absorbed. Oh, you've got your religion. Yes, I've got a religion and I like this system of religion because this allows me to be me. This allows me to do whatever I want to do without really any concern about God. God's already taken care of things. God knows how good I really am. I've got it all figured out. Now I can live in my world. I can be the center of gravity. I really don't have to do any of this denying myself and following Christ and and taking up a cross and maybe suffering for him. I'm glad I don't believe in that kind of a religion. 
I believe in the religion where I'm at the center. And dear friends, if that is you, unless you listen to reason, the reason of the gospel, you will perish in your sins. So, to Pilate's dismay, the crowd demanded the release of Barabbas, causing him to ask the most important question in life. We see it in verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And really, the issue here is you either have to crown him or crucify him. There's no middle ground here. There's no other alternative. And folks, please hear this. God has made it clear. You will either bow or you will burn. That's the bottom line. And Pilate and the Jewish religionists and all of the multitudes, the multitudes who think of this now, four days later were hailing him as their king. They chose not to crown him, but to crucify him. And so goes the power of sin's deception. And finally, as we look at the text, we see the self-condemnation of Israel in verses 22 and 26. Again, think of this. How tragic. Pilate, ignoring the warning of his wife, the providential warning that God brought brought to him, he ignores this and he allows the shouts of the crowds to silence his his conscience. He's too frightened to stand for Christ. His heart is too hardened to believe in Christ. He's too self-absorbed to deny himself and follow Christ. And so he, like so many people today, and down through redemptive history, joins the spiritually blind lemmings on the broad way to destruction. So in an act of what he perceived to be diplomacy, and frankly in an act of cowardice and self-preservation, Pilate publicly washes his hands of the whole situation, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And of course, he was not innocent, nor were any of the rest of the howling mob who were screaming for his death. Nor were the rest of the Jews who stood in silence and did not come to the Lord's defense and take a stand with him. Interestingly enough, the Jews rightfully indicted themselves that day, saying in verse 25, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Now, I want you to understand something that's very crucial here. As we look beyond the pathos of this particular narrative and this historical event. I want you to understand what happened to Israel on that day. Because I fear that there's much false teaching that goes forth with regard to Israel. Many people would have us believe that somehow God is finished with Israel. That somehow they got all of the curses and now the church gets all of the blessings. And therefore, all that's happening in the world today with respect to Israel and all of the prophecies, they don't really refer to Israel. We need to allegorize that and spiritualize the text and all of that really refers to the church and on and on it goes. But I want you to understand that because of Israel's rejection, some, but not all of Israel became, according to Romans 11, a discarded branch. 
Indeed, he has always preserved a remnant, and we see that here. And as we study Romans 11 and other passages, we, we see, especially there in Romans 11, that while that branch was discarded, wild olive branches of Gentiles were then grafted in, according to verse 17, to share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. You see, Jesus had warned the Jews earlier, his covenant people, in Matthew 21, verse 43, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. A reference to the Gentiles and the church age and so on. Now, it's important for you to understand that the colossal failures of Israel did not abrogate the promises that God had given to her earlier in the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. Now, indeed, she came under enormous judgment and remains temporarily under that judgment to this very day. According to Romans 11, verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. A reference to when the Lord returns again. And even Israel's current judgment has not exhausted God's promises of grace and restoration to her. In fact, I think of Psalm 130 and verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Folks, don't be proud and think, oh my, those people, oh, they were so wicked. No wonder they get all of the curses, but oh, we get the blessings. That's exactly the attitude that Paul was trying to warn against in Romans 11. You see, from the very beginning, you must understand, that God called Israel through no merit of her own to be a witness people. Genesis 12.3 says, for all of the peoples, not just to the Jew, for all of the peoples. And Jesus said in John 10.16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And folks, although we grieve over the deep-seated spiritual blindness of Israel, both then and now, we must understand that according to Romans 11 and verse 12, that their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will be their fulfillment? In other words, what he's saying is that there's, a, there's great promise here, there's great hope. Let me explain this to you. We see that during the Great Tribulation, there will be a spiritual revival that will burst forth in Israel. In Revelation 7:4, we read that there will be 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel that will be witnesses of the gospel during that time. And because of their faithful witness, according to verse 9, a great multitude of Gentiles, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues will stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches will be in their hands. You see, friends, at the second coming of Christ, we read that all Israel is going to be saved. In Romans, I'm sorry, in Zechariah chapter 12, in verse 10, we read how that, that God will pour out in the house of David at that time when the Lord returns. 
And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he will pour out the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And according to Zechariah 13, 1, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. You see, this will be the time of ultimate fulfillment of God's covenants to his chosen people. When Jesus returns, according to Zechariah 14, 9 and verse 11 and verse 16 that we read earlier this morning, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. Verse 11 tells us that there will be no more curse. Verse 16 says that then it will come about that anyone or that any who are left of all of the nations will go up from year to year to worship the king of king and the Lord of hosts. And so, folks, back to what Paul was saying in Romans 11, verse 12, what the Holy Spirit is telling here is telling us here is simply this. If God used Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as a means of great salvation for so many Gentiles, how much more will he use her faith in Christ to win many more to him when he returns as king of kings? and Lord of Lords, and establishes His millennial kingdom. Folks, I believe the Scripture is is abundantly clear here. God's retribution against Israel by taking the kingdom away from her and giving it to the Gentiles who will produce its fruit has a saving, a redeeming purpose. And that is, according to Scripture, to make Israel jealous. You see, their failure is not final. God is not finished with them. In Romans 11 and verse 11, Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, referring to the Jews, jealous. You see, when God gave the kingdom to the Gentiles, it wasn't because somehow they were more deserving nor did he nullify the unconditional promises that he gave to his people in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And so with this in mind, we can view the great tragedy of Israel's rejection and therefore self-condemnation through the eyes of faith and the redeeming purposes of God who has declared the end from the beginning. Oh, what a Savior. What hope we have in Christ. And I close this morning as we look back at his humiliation in verse 26. Pilate then released Barabbas for them after having Jesus scourged. He handed him over to be crucified. Beloved, even as we contemplate our precious Lord Jesus being hung upon a post with his feet dangling in the air while soldiers take turns on either side of him, lashing him across the back with a torturous whip that would lacerate muscles and, and, and expose veins and arteries and vital organs and many times rip into those vital organs and most of the time kill someone. Even as we look at all of this, we must not lose perspective. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily suffered and died in our stead. Why did He do that? 
so that we might be able to see and to savor the glory of Christ and to long to be in the presence of the one who loved us so. That is the great gift of the gospel. Yes, indeed, in our salvation, we can see that God's wrath has been satisfied. We can see that our guilt has been removed. We can see that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. And we can see all of the blessings of the inheritance that awaits us. But, dear friends, as glorious as all of these things are, the glory of glories, the greatest gift of all, the good news of the gospel is that because of what Christ has done for us, we can enjoy the glory of God in Christ for eternity. He is our gift. He is our joy. And I plead with all who hear my voice this morning that we see and we savor the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who know and love Him, and that we love Him above all else. And for those who have never crowned Him His King, if you continue on, then in fact... You concur with those who crucified Him. And so I call upon you to repent and to be saved before it is too late. Let's pray together. Father, as we contemplate these glorious truths that somehow pierce our hearts, we confess that our salvation, once again, is all of grace and we praise You for it. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your suffering and for Your shame. And I pray that those who have never seen their sin will somehow see it even this day and repent of it and confess You as their Savior and their Lord and be saved. May the miracle of the new birth be theirs today so that they, along with all of the redeemed, will be able to enjoy Your presence forevermore. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray, and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.